0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandes. Check them out at Zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 157. My guest is Peter Hanna of Fast Markets. It's a wide-ranging discussion from price to supply and demand to cost curves, lipidolite, sodium ion, what's driving the price volatility in China, and a whole lot more. Without further ado, Peter Hannah. Peter Hanna, welcome back to the Global Lithium Podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Joe. It's uh, great to be back uh, talking to you again in another period of uh, what seemed like a, a fair bit of market uncertainty.
0: And with that, let's get into it. What is your assessment or your thoughts on the current price situation, particularly in China with the rapidly tumbling spot price?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's quite a big question, so it probably requires a, a fair length of answer. Um, I think there's always two things we can do in price. You can observe price, and pure observation tells us that, yes, yeah, a serious downtrend going on at the moment, and it's still got a bit of momentum behind it. Um, but probably the more interesting thing to do is try and interpret the, the price action, um and see what it means for where we are in the cycle where prices go forward from here um and to do that i think obviously you really have to understand the drivers um for me the drivers were twofold as you expect supply and demand um the high price regime has pulled out a lot of very sort of unorthodox um, marginal supply into the market um that, that has you know Hit in to some extent, DSO uh, reprocessing of tailings, high cost lipidolite. It all brings lithium units into the system. Um, but uh, personally, I feel that the current slump is more uh, aligned to a dip in demand, as you said. You know, particularly localized to China, um, but also fairly sluggish outside. Um, if we look at the China situation, the the drivers are several fold. So um, obviously, you have the, the typical seasonal slowdown around first quarter of the year with Chinese New Year. Um, you had the the withdrawing of EV subsidies, which sort of pulled a bit of demand from this quarter out back into the last quarter of last year. Um, you have this price war going on between the, the EV segment and the ICE segment due to this um, anti-pollution legislation coming in at the, the end of July. So the ICE segment is slashing costs, trying to, slashing prices, trying to shift a lot of vehicles. Um, but beyond that, I think that the the biggest factor is still the, macroeconomic situation and and mentality in China coming out of the the COVID period. Um, Now, I think just after all of that, those years of experience, um, the Chinese consumer is a little bit rattled at the moment still, um, and it's going to take some time for that confidence to come back, uh, particularly with the the property market quite sluggish as well. That's obviously where a lot of Chinese domestic wealth is tied up. Um, So I think we in the outside of China expect the big tanker that is the Chinese economy to turn around a little bit faster than in reality it is. So uh, yeah, we're we're seeing this slump in demand. Um, But for me, the the factors that are driving it are largely, you'd say, temporary. So presumably there will be a bounce back at some stage once those have passed through.
0: It's a pretty interesting combination of things. One, the ending, at least temporarily, of the EV incentives. And then layering on that a mad dash for people that are making ICEs to get rid of them before the new legislation comes out. Which do you think is a bigger factor? Or do you have any any thoughts on that?
1: Well, as I said, I think it's the the combination or layering of these factors that is the more significant aspect. You know, one one element alone probably wouldn't have resulted in this, but when you layer everything up, it's it's really quite a slump, um, and like as I said, you know, overall, I think the the bigger factor is still just the general consumer um, appetite in China consumer mentality. Um, yeah, there's there's uh, some some of these factors that, that will take time to work through, but I think you know everyone always expects or, or seems to expect demand to travel in a smooth or slightly straighter line than in reality it does, and in reality we will get these perturbations, these periods of lower demand and then and then it will have a a corresponding overshoot at another time. And that's what essentially drives the expected volatility um, that I think we have to be comfortable with and expect in this market.
0: Well let's let's bring one other factor into this and that is the historical tendency of the Chinese when price is going down to stop buying, draw their inventories down. Which then usually, when that turns, creates the knee jerk reaction to then try to build the inventory back up the and there's two narratives coming out of China right now that inventories have been drawn down, and then there's a second narrative that says, "Oh no, um because demand is down, inventories are high what what's your assessment of what's actually going on?
1: yeah, there's definitely an element of uh of Psych, market psychology that plays into this. Um, and it, it drives feedback loops, especially in, I think, the, the Chinese markets and the way they, uh, you know, this restocking, destocking cycles play out. Um, from my perspective, I, I think that, you know, we, we are hearing that, that there's still some destocking to, to take place into this, um, into this down cycle. So, it's not fully destocked, but that is, you know, what what is the trend? So, um, you know, consumers sitting on the sidelines, making do, hoping that price will be cheaper, um, you know, a few weeks from now. But eventually, you'll start to see, um, you know, turnaround on that because people will start to quietly just become more active in the spot market, and that's why I think when when we do see a recovery, it will probably be more. U-shaped than than V-shaped. I think you'll see it probably in the inventory data first, as um, you know, the the smarter or more astute consumers will start to to quietly restock, um, and and you'll get that shift of the inventories that are built up at the mine sites to uh, restocking at the cathode side.
0: That was a question I was asked yesterday. Was you know, what do you think inventory levels are? And it's really hard to know what inventory levels are in China. Do you feel the same way about that, or do you have some source that I don't know about?
1: No, it is it's difficult to to really get an accurate read. Um, the best source for me are are reporters who are in in touch with people on the ground and and you know, communicating on this sort of thing and actually speaking to people. So I, I speak to them, and they speak to their sources at these uh. Uh, you know Chinese companies, and and we get a read on it that way.
0: Let me just get your candid. If you put what's happened in the last four or five months into context, has anything about the narrative that we talked about last June on your first podcast appearance about there being a longer-term structural shortage? Is this just? an aberration in a localized area, or is this something that maybe I missed and many other people missed?
1: Yeah, I think that's the key question, isn't it, that everyone's sort of asking themselves and and trying to really uh, drill down into our own reading of the situation. Um, For my part, if I really step back a bit further, I, I do see it as expected volatility um in that is largely driven by temporary factors um and that the overall narrative of this being a a mega trend and a real sort of super cycle paradigm still is in place you know this is a market growing at uh, more than 20 percent um and is going to continue to be a real struggle for supply to to match up to demand and especially given the 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 tendency in super cycles to consistently underestimate demand and overestimate supply. So when, when people sort of roll their eyes at the bullish narrative and say, Oh, it's different this time, is it? I think, well, actually, no, it's, it's precisely not different this time because so far demand is surprised to the upside and supply to the downside. So uh, my base case would be for that to perhaps continue. I, I think though, you know, to, to steel man, the, the case for the prosecution, the, response to high prices of of marginal supply has perhaps been a bit faster and, and more urgent than I, than maybe I expected and I don't know if it's the, the same with you. Um, but I would just sort of argue that that's uh almost going back to what we discussed on on the first podcast evidence that the price signal is to some extent working that's the way it should happen it, it should really drive an urgency even if the the supply that comes out is very marginal.
0: Well I guess I would also comment that even when we hit 40,000 a ton spot price which will happen in the next few days if prices keep going down it's still 10 times what spot the low spot low was as evidenced by Orica's sales into China in 2020. So even with this massive correction price at forty thousand, still ten x what the low end of the spot pricing was in twenty twenty, and I and I think that context is really important. And if we look at where it stands vis a vis the integrated cost curve, it's nowhere near it.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's all about you know context and expectations. Price markers, you know, your your four handle, your five handle on price looks very different. Whether you're coming down towards it or going up, uh, up towards it from from a lower price, and but I think you know speaking speaking to our analysts um, and their forecasts, which are still fairly high, they they say look, it might not be as high as 2022 maximum levels, but it's still an incredibly bullish outlook. As you say, you know, price is multiples above the the integrated cost curve. So yeah, I, from from where where I'm sitting, we're still in that um, high price paradigm.
0: If we were looking at this two years ago, and prices prices shooting up, and I certainly never expected it to. I thought the next price cycle would stop somewhere in the thirties. Everybody would have been happy with that. You hit eighty, and when we talked last time, we really talked about inside China. There was a fair amount of transactions at, at the spot price. Where do you see in a moment where everybody's pulling in their horns? How much of the volume is actually moving its spot? Because there isn't a whole lot of volume apparently <laughs> moving the last couple of months.
1: Yeah, I mean, in in this sort of market where the the consumers are standing off and you know waiting for the lower prices, you do tend to get a, a, a bit of a drying up of liquidity. Um, so in the China domestic spot market, we're seeing lower transaction volumes. Uh, funnily enough though the the availability of material that that's providing is seeing slightly higher volumes in the seaborne spot market Um, but in terms of how much material is moving at spot that then comes back to the question of of how the contract material is being uh structured and you know there there is a is more linkage to indices than than we saw even last time we spoke um and certainly long before that um so i think the There's more material than there was in the last few years now um, moving at somewhere closer to spot prices, given the the prevalence of indexation.
0: Well, it seemed to me when I looked at the January Japanese imports from China and they were still above 80, that somebody was smart enough to say, hey, if we can't get rid of it locally, we can we can still offload some to other markets at at high prices. And I'm really anxious to see what the next two months show in the Korean and the Japanese stats. But let's talk about contract prices. I've made the statement that just because of the way this all works, even with this falling spot, and even if it's a good indicator, contract pricing is gonna be higher in 2023, and it's gonna have the highest volume so average lithium prices in 2023 are gonna be higher than they were in 2022. Do you agree? And if you don't agree, why am I wrong? Uh
1: no, agree. Next. That was too easy. <laughs> yeah. No, um No, your, your rationale is correct. Is is because the um the what I call the legacy contract mechanisms have um there the were still reflecting prices that were negotiated much closer to the lows of you know 2020 or uh, 2021 were still flowing they were still in play through much of 2022 um, a lot of that a lot of those contracts so were renegotiated to um, reflect or, or utilize indices that were linked to spot um, often with a lag you know it could be a, a month or quarterly lag so you get a little bit of a, a lagging mechanism uh, but overall the the absence of a lot of those old legacy mechanisms now in contracts will mean, as you said, the, the average price levels this year, almost regardless of what happens to, to spot now, uh, will most likely be a fair bit higher than 2022.
0: Well, I've always said that the best easily accessible indicator of what pricing, especially outside of China, is doing is to look at SQM's quarterlies and see what their price yield was. And in Q4, it was 59 bucks a kilo what do you expect to see in and that would be the high end of contract prices sqm's probably the most exposed to shorter duration contracts we saw all cam was i think closer to 43 albemarle live don't talk about it they just try to bury it in the details as we go forward would you expect because sqm is more exposed to short term that somebody with that philosophy is gonna dip quicker than the other guys?
1: Uh in, in theory, but honestly I think that the, the long-term trend is much more of the convergence of pricing approach. So um more of a a convention of, of how pricing is done and a linkage to spot indices. I think the variance well there's still variance because that that's not exactly clear cut even now. There there are still a, a variety of approaches. Um but that will, I think, streamline eventually. Uh, but the, you know, the big variance it, it will there will still be a lot of price differentiation based on less arbitrary contracting structured uh, structure decisions and more on what there should be variation on in, in terms of you know, which is your market. Is it China domestic? Is it um, material that is going to flow into the supply chains of the major international OEMs? um what is it carbonate hydroxide so um that that's what we're seeing at the moment like a real differentiation on the basis of grade um so and and also on the basis of you know what that material can flow into in terms of which supply chains is it qualified in so and that's why the SIF japan and korea prices on a spot basis have held up much better than domestic china because a lot of the material that can Make it into the Chinese LFP supply chain. Certainly can't make it into the international OEM supply chains. And and there's where I think uh, lithium specialty chemical characteristics really come into the fore. It's in this sort of market environment um, where where we see a lot more differentiation. It's it may be easy easier to bring sheer lithium units to the market, but it's still incredibly difficult to make top tier battery grade lithium hydroxide. And and that's what people like you have always been saying. Um, and
0: it's it's clear now in the price signals. All right. We've talked about the short term. When we start going back to the, what what are the next few years look like? And you read bank reports. There, there are really three mindsets. You know, one would be undersupply for years and high prices. Then there's the most interesting and hardest to understand, undersupply for years and rapidly falling prices. And then third, oversupply and rapidly dropping prices, which, which does make sense if you believe somebody can bring capacity on much quicker than we've historically seen. What are your thoughts on the longer term? And the? You you said it before, people say it all the time. You said it on the last podcast. Ultimately higher prices fix high prices. It's just how long does it take?
1: Yeah. Uh I, I certainly with you on the the confusion around the middle one. Uh the the case that um there will be undersupply but yet still falling prices. Um that that's perplexing. Um having said that, you know, our analysts are um forecasting slight deficits over the next uh, few years out to twenty twenty six, but deficits that are that are accounting for um adjusted apparent supply so the need for to build working stock as the the whole industry grows um but the argument for for prices being slightly lower than maybe 2022 levels is because that's accounting for the for the restocking um component there will be you know smart, smart consumers will will restock when prices are slightly low and then maybe sort of Hang back a little bit if if prices run up. So you can perhaps have a slight deficit, but prices still a little bit lower than 2022 levels, but still at very high levels historically. In terms of the, you know, my, yeah, where I sort of end up is far more towards your first um, case scenario, which is um, under supply and high prices. I think that there will be periods where you get a, uh, a rapid response of what you call swing supply, you know, what we're seeing now, um, marginal supply that really has no right being in a in a market uh, in in normal periods. Um, but the and and I guess the the bearish case there is that that leaves you with a an incentive price for higher quality supply that's actually below the market price, and it could further chip away from there. Um, but really, you know, that those higher quality assets are proving, uh, you know, expect- expectedly difficult and, and time-consuming to bring online. Um, I, I often think of it, of, of what we're seeing at the moment, as somewhat analogous to the iron ore market in the early 2010s, where you had several years of very high prices, and then the, the Chinese domestic machine really cranked into gear, very high cost, marginal supply, um, very environmentally damaging, but it did bring the overall price down. Um, it, it succeeded in doing that to a far higher cost base. But even then, what have we seen over most of the years? Uh, the iron ore price has been well above the, uh, the cost curve, only connected with it for about two or three years for the last 10 or 15. Um, so again, similarly to here, um, in a super cycle dynamic, the risks will always be tilted to the upside. Um, so to, for prices to stay lower, everything has to go right um the demand has to be reasonable in 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 people's expectations and and supply has to maintain its reliability whereas for prices to run again very little has to go wrong in terms of uh demand exceeding expectations
0: or or supply faltering let's ask a philosophical question what is a high price
1: Yeah, that's a it's a good question because I think everyone's notion of that or subjectivity around that is is very different. Um high price is what anyone considers to be a high price. Uh so if for a low cost producer, anything that, that that is, you know, right down to sort of 15-20 is probably still high. Um but but it depends yeah, on what on what the costs are. I think let's let's sort of think about it more more logically than that. I think there's a sweet spot of price for this market and this energy transition that probably does suit both sides best. And that's probably somewhere around $30 to $40. Very high, a a big incentive to bring on new supply, but also not prohibitive for the uh, the, not not causing a demand constraint for the build out of EVs.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. If you hadn't said it, I was going to frame the next Phase that way is I never expected price to crest 40 or 40,000. I think that if we look at 30,000, every good project gets built at 30,000. Yeah. What happens when it goes to 80, then that sets a mindset that, oh, a high lithium price is 80,000. And I think that's detrimental to the industry. I think it's detrimental to the energy transition. I think then you get a lot of wasted capital because people are throwing money at garbage projects. You know, people always think I'm a price bull, but I, I'm i very comfortable if the Chinese show more discipline they have in the past and that spot goes back up, and it will, I believe, it'd be better if it didn't get to 80,000 again. But then you have the whole market sentiment and sentiment drives the behavior that got us to 80, which is why I said last year, next time this runs, it could go over 100, not because it should. That's the way people have behaved in the past. What are your thoughts on the timing of a rebound in spot, if you believe there's going to be one, and then how you would see that resting. I don't need an exact prediction.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, my, my, my thoughts sort of uh, align with, with those of our uh, research analysts, and shout out to, to Will Adams and his team. Um, they are looking at uh, probably a, a recovery in towards the end of Q2. Um, I, as I said earlier, I feel it's going to be probably most likely a bit of a U-shaped recovery. Um, we are already, I think, coming into cost pressure at these levels. Um, you know, we're hearing anecdotal evidence of uh, some of the higher cost lipidolite operations turning off the taps at these sorts of levels. So it, it would suggest that we're somewhere close to a floor of some sorts, um, but in terms of when you'll actually get a, a tug on the market to, to recover, that might take some time. Um, I I think of it at, like the tide going in and out. And from my window here, I live on overlooking the Thames Estuary, uh, Six hours of the day, you can sort of see the tide coming in and then it goes out. But about one hour either side of high and low, you get this slack period where it looks like nothing's happening, but obviously that something's turning. And that's why I said, you know, if you look at the inventory data, I think that's where you'll see the first signs of uh, of something turning. Uh, the, the smart consumers will start to break on that uh, traditional psychology of, of waiting for lower prices, and they'll start to quietly restock, and then the market will tighten up again. Because I, as I said, you know, I think unquestionably demand will recover. That's uh, the the fundamentals of this mega trend are just still as they are. So any any undershoot of demand will, will have a compensatory period where it picks up again.
0: Clearly, China dominates, at least for the present, battery manufacturing. But do they still dominate EV consumption in a way that makes the story just a China story? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think for now the answer is still broadly yes. I mean, it's still two thirds China, which is why I think when China sneezes, like this, the the whole rest of the industry catches the cold. Uh, but it it won't be like that forever. So um, the the U.S. market in particular is the big sleeping giant that is is growing fast coming off off a low base um so it it will in time become less china centric but even outside of 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 china right now the other markets are also slightly underperforming a little bit sluggish there's still part shortage um you know there on you you can see evidence of that in the waitlist for the evs there, there's you know two year waitlist on on the one hand you can interpret that as bullish as, you know there's pent up demand but on the other hand you think some level is just there's something going wrong. It's not not enough. EVs are able to be produced at, at this level. So again, I think it's uh there's some temporary issues that eventually will work through, and then uh, you'll see demand pick up a little bit again.
0: Well, as you uh, look at announcements, LG yesterday announced a uh, 43 gigawatt hours going to be built in Arizona and operate in I think 25 or 26 is when they plan. You see a lot of announcements like that, but do people just expect all these things to happen too fast and on time? And I know that's true in lithium supply, but when we're talking about the other side of this, and it's it's kind of interesting that just that one plant would essentially use most of Thacker Pass's capacity. You know, the one bright light of building capacity inside the United States gets... And, and I'm not saying they will be selling to that plant. I'm just saying, if you look at just balance, one big battery factory takes out one significant lithium project in terms of uh, supply and demand.
1: Yeah, I think it just comes back to that um, that sort of thing of uh, announcements are easy, um, but the reality and delivering on that executing is is much more difficult and is is the raw material supply going to be there? Is is still the big question for all of these announcements? As you said, you know that if if they really do build out and come to fruition, then uh, they're going to require more raw material than
0: is in the pipeline today. Well, much more. I was looking at a McKinsey uh, report on gigawatt hour, and they have four point seven terawatts in twenty thirty, and you know that's on top of Abalmarl's prediction that demand will be 3.7 so they're there uh you know a million tons of lce above that basically <laughs> basically and i don't think either one of those numbers are achievable so then that just takes the step back to what's a realistic scenario and is the realistic scenario much easier to achieve if price stays high but not crazy high your thirty or forty thousand a ton price will that actually speed up the energy transition?
1: I think arguably yes. Um, you know the, the the demand numbers that this industry has has to hit are astronomical, and and even the high estimates keep on being having to to, to be re-rated upwards. Um, the best way of actually delivering that or, or delivering. As best as we that we can is to have a price environment that incentivizes as much new supply as possible. Um, but as you said, those numbers are at the moment looking unachievable from from here. so we're still in that demand constraint environment where actually how much lithium will will be demanded is however much can be supplied.
0: yeah, that's that's the way I view it. And for that listener who just heard me, Talk about LCEs and terawatt hours, gigawatt hours in the same. I don't use a lithium intensity of 1.0. I use something closer to 0.85 now. But the statement is is fair that if you took a 4.7 terawatt hour world in 2030, that's much higher. Than, and we can quibble whether it's 850,000 more or a million tons more than than the Abemarle number, but I think the point's fair. But I know there's a lot of listeners who like to see me trip up. So uh, I'm, just getting, I'm just getting ahead of that one. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zelandes, for bringing this episode of the Global Lithium Podcast to you today. Zelandes prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Are you tired of low-confidence data, lack of actionable insights, and multi-day turnaround? Then head to www.zelandes.com to learn more. The top six lithium chemical producers, which I would say were SQM, Abel, Marl, Gangfin, Gang, all Allchem, and Livent. No disrespect to somebody like Pilbara, who's not making lithium chemicals at this point, just making LCEs. Um, they had about 60% of the market in 2022. In 2018, the top four had 70% of the market. So we're seeing a change, which we needed to have happen. How many suppliers do you think it's going to take in 2025 to take half the market? How are you seeing this change when you look at the dynamic? The Lithium Americas, the Pilbara's as they try to develop chemicals, Minres people like that. What do you see as the industry structure in 2025,
1: 2026? Yeah, so our, our numbers on the uh, the research side suggest that the, the big six um, as they are today would would be accounting for more like 40 to 45% of uh, total supply by 2025, um, which yeah, obviously suggests that you would have a more diversified supply base with more players making that up. And I think You'd probably see around an, another sort of five or six players to get you up to the, the 60% that the, the big six held last year. Um most of those I think would probably actually be the Chinese integrated players to, to to get up to that number. Um that that's the the scenario as it stands right now, but obviously there's the prospect that we see MA and consolidation between now and then. Um, especially I guess if if prices come a little bit lower and, and asset valuations look a bit more attractive.
0: When you were on last June, we talked about fast markets price methodology. With all the change we've had, in the, even in this short, relatively short period since we last talked, has anything changed in your price methodology? Have there been any tweaks? Do you, how does that evolve over time?
1: In terms of our pricing methodology, nothing really has changed since uh since we last spoke still the same uh, methodology and, and approach applied um and everything i think i've emphasized around our emphasis on being really specific as to what our prices represent has uh you know become ever more important so you know as we price the spot we mean spot for delivery within a t- certain time frame uh, we're very specific as to the grade we price into the regional basis and being um, very strict in adhering to that as our uh, pricing assessors do, our, our reporters do, I think is what, you know, lets us see and, and interpret the market in its full reality. As as I mentioned earlier, you know, there are wide spreads now between the seaborne prices and the Chinese domestic prices, and there's good reasons for that. Um, and it's only when you sort of price them very specifically that you see that. Um, likewise, the, the, price of C1 hydroxide has, has stayed the highest and I think um, if we think back to, to a lot of the arguments that were made in the past few years against lithium becoming more of an index priced market were around the fact that there couldn't be one global price for lithium and I've agreed since day one um, that they, they couldn't and, and shouldn't be but what we're seeing is that when you have multiple price points you still get market-based pricing that that helps uh, us have price signals so that the the investment goes to the right place um whereas but but you still get all that granularity and the reality of the picture so what it's telling us right now is that yes you can bring on lithium units and it brings the general price down but what we need is investment in proper you know high quality tier one lithium hydroxide supply in particular um because that's that's what's sticking out there as as showing tightest still.
0: Well, the interesting thing to me, I refer to the Japanese import stats in January. The price of hydroxide was half the price of carbonate. And that just goes back to show you contracts.
1: Contracting structures, yeah. Yes. So the, the real and price signal, though, is the, is the spot signal. That's the signal. The, the realization, obviously, is relevant, um, but it's reflecting more arbitrary negotiated elements.
0: And I think what we're going to see going forward is what I've talked about. 2022 had the largest price dispersion I think we'll we'll see in your lifetime not even my lifetime it was 10 below 10 to a little above 80 on a isolated transaction basis and I and I know there there were contracts out there that were still under 10 in 2022 and I I completely agree with you I think you're going to start seeing the convergence of as old contracts roll off and Price met- methodologies on contracts evolve; that there'll be much, much less dispersion between high and low within the same product grade. Obviously, yeah. yeah.
1: I think that the key the key thing I look to emphasise is that there will still be differentiation, but for the right reasons, it will be reflecting real you know, market factors, value in use, um, you know, grade, locational factors that are are real and should be differentiated.
0: Looking out to the next five years, we currently have a world where Australia and South America dominate raw material supply. How do you see that evolving with developments in places like Africa, Canada, Brazil?
1: Yeah, it will definitely become more diversified. I think um, looking looking forward, we still expect Australia and South America to be um, very major, pretty dominant sources. Um, But the big growth that we see is domestic China um, to almost come alongside those other other sources, source regions. Um, And the the second biggest would be the growth out of Africa, which will probably still be largely Chinese controlled um, with obviously, yeah, Canadian, North American material growing as well. Um, But overall, more diversified, um, which is necessary. We need the lithium from, from wherever it lies.
0: Another thing I'd like to get your thoughts on is when you look at the cost curve, in my mind, there's two cost curves. There's the vertically integrated cost curve, and there's the converter cost curve. The converter cost curve is essentially controlled by the price of spodumene from Australia to China. We have seen spodumene price hold up quite well. Obviously, a lot of that's done on hydroxide-based formulas. How do you see Spodumane price evolving over the next, well, the rest of the year, let's frame it that way.
1: Yes, it's it's a difficult one. Uh, I think it will still be coming. It's it's coming under more downward pressure right now as we speak. Um, I think that's difficult to, to argue with Um, as the, the, the chinese prices come off in particular so it's, it's catching that downdraft as well um having said that as the industry stands you know it's still uh where there's a, a supply bottleneck at that uh, raw material spodumian end um so it all depends on yeah how that market balance for for that feed stock in particular um holds out um I, th- I think though you know in terms of where prices are now and sort of where the, where the converted cost curve is, um, I'd argue that we're, we're already almost touching it. As I said, we're, we're hearing that there, there is some um, uh, shutdowns of some of the really high cost marginal assets. Um, and I think we've actually been probably more connected with a very uh, unusual or, or or weird cost curve for, for longer than we think. I mean, even when prices were at 60 or $70 levels, there was, the Pidolite being mined illegally from the back hills of Yutun that was marginal at that at 60. So, you know, we're in touch with the cost curve, but it's just a cost curve that's got nothing to do with, you know, the proper industry, um, let alone the
0: integrated industry. Let's bring ESG into this for a minute. The world needs all the lithium it can get, but you've got most of the world, especially outside of China, signing up for battery passports and ESG compliance. Lepidolite artisanally mined (laughs) is certainly not ESG friendly. I can see this, what's happened makes perfect sense to me from the way China behaves on, and even Africa. There's a lot of artisanal mining going on in Africa right now. But as you look at a maturing battery industry, and a maturing lithium industry, do you think that kind of supply can be isolated by a battery manufacturer like a CATL who's shipping globally and say, "Well, your battery passport looks good, but this other stuff we're using, we're, we're just gonna we're just gonna sell it in this this niche market that that seems to me to be the ultimate in hypocrisy if it's allowed."
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It's just um, how how naive. Uh, do we have to be to believe that it it will be called out for for what it is Um, you know you look at the the commodities industry and there's just example after example of of this sort of hypocrisy where it makes you uncomfortable if you look into it too closely but um, ultimately I think that the best means of of uh, you know dealing with this sort of thing in the market is to have differentiated price points so i i certainly believe that we'll see um more of a development of the of market pricing for material going into the us and into europe that is more subject to uh, these stricter uh, requirements that will show a different price action um and and part of that will be esg um so that's that's ultimately the, the only way we deal with it, because otherwise you're reliant on, say, you know, Chinese domestic government legislation, which, who knows, it's nothing, nothing we can do anything about.
0: Let me ask you, since we last talked, what is the biggest surprise in the lithium market for you?
1: Um, I think the, the biggest surprise for me has been how surprised everyone else has appeared to be at the emergence of some serious volatility. Um, because this is something I was, you know, writing about on on LinkedIn and Twitter several months ago. That, that this is a market where you get very high price levels, way above the cost curve. You give yourself a much bigger canvas for for the price action to be painted on. The brush strokes are, are naturally bigger, um, and where there is a slight uh, temporary dislocation or a, a pullback in demand, then there's nothing much holding price between that sort of opportunity cost competition pricing level at the consumer end and Costco pressure. So price moves very fast between those sorts of levels and, um, and it's never a straight line. So I think one, one thing that I think people have been called out by, even though they shouldn't have been is, is volatility. It's easy say, me saying that when I have no skin in the game, uh, when you're actually <laughs> responsible for PL it's probably a bit more of a, of a of a shock um but the other thing i guess beyond that uh is i have been slightly surprised by the the speed and volume of some of the the marginal supplier response you know poor quality as it is high cost as it is it has been pulled out by this high price environment um i don't know what what do you think on that Has, has that surprised
0: you at all it really has Not that the attempt would be made to get every lithium value you can get. It's just that you would have people murdered over sticking lithium bearing rocks in bags, which has happened on two continents. And it's, it's a sad, it's a sad story, but that's what happens when you, this is like gold fever. Yeah. And they, they called it gold fever for a reason. I was a bit surprised. I'm surprised by how much, though I think there's a lot of false expectation that, oh, China's mastered all this. Well, it took China almost 20 years to be able to make lithium hydroxide that you could put in a high-quality battery, 20 years. Everybody thinks that, oh, they just spun this web. Well, I was there, (laughs) and I knew what they were making then, and I know what they're making now. And and I just think that people's expectations of China's ability – like. China's the only country that can quickly respond to things. I think that's nonsense. I think they have in the past just because of an entrepreneurial spirit that maybe other places don't have that are, are, are starting to see that they they need to have. But I, it surprised me. lipidolite has been there for a long time. I mean, last time we had a lipidolite company formed that didn't get into production quick enough to actually affect the market, but... I think right now that you're seeing a shakeout in the volatility you talk about. I, I have said this for a year since I've been doing this podcast that China's the most volatile market will always be the most volatile market just because they have the the spirit to um, do things quickly and not worry about the consequences. Mm-hmm. Whereas when, when you operate from a purely entrepreneurial motive. And that's that's the real irony of all this. Because I start talking about entrepreneurs in China. Everybody says, well, China's communist. Well, I think people that have that lens have never been to China. Yeah. yeah. And have, yeah. Have, never, never have never seen what, what happens. So when I was living there and I'd take a trip, I'd come back and there'd be a bridge half built Yeah. <laughs> by the time I got back. And if that was in the United States, that would be a six-year project. Um, I'm digressing a little bit here, but yeah, I was I was surprised, but I also don't think the whole epithermite or bit is sustainable in a in a serious battery world. Yeah, I, I think it's a blip.
1: Yeah, that's what I agree with, and it's why I sort of I highlight that that uh, analogy to to Chinese iron ore that was. It came into the market for a little bit high cost stuff, but it hasn't held price down, and it hasn't uh, hasn't always been there. Actually, there, there were progressive environmental crackdowns on that that the constrain the
0: supply over the years. I thought you just wanted me to say lithium's not a commodity. I thought that's why you were tweaking me yet again with <laughs> with the iron ore analogy, and and that's that's fine too because I, lo- I love bringing it up just yeah, yeah <laughs> to wind you up. <laughs> yeah, you frame that well. Fast markets has the premier Global Lithium event. What are your expectations for the conference in Las Vegas this year? I would assume it will be a record breaker.
1: Yeah, I, I think so too. So um, I think another huge event, probably over 500 people like like last year, and we've got some top tier uh, speakers on the agenda from, from the major international players. Um, I think one, one thing that will probably be quite high up on the agenda um, is actually the risk management aspect of, of the industry now. I think given the volatility that's come in, uh, it's gonna be very top of people's minds um, and the, the gradual maturing of the derivative instruments on uh, the CME in particular, um, which will probably be doing over thousand lots of open interest by the time um, June, June rolls around, but also SGX is, has seen some trade on their contracts. These are starting to become meaningful things now that I think um, will be big fixtures of the market going forward. And I think this this conference might have a few uh, you know moments of, of recognition around that happening. So that's yeah. how it works. The the banks will offer swaps to their clients, um, take on that risk, and then the banks will take the risk to the uh, exchanges. And, and that's where you get the futures volume come in.
0: Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. We talked about this last time. I thought maybe when I asked you what should I have asked you that I didn't, which I was about to do, that that's what you would have brought up. So we we may have uh, already crossed that uh, great divide. Is there anything else that you want to talk about?
1: Um, I think if there's one more thing, uh, I, I was you may have seen a, a post on LinkedIn just last week. I was discussing with my colleague, uh, Jordan Roberts, who is one of our analysts, um, this aspect of the, the climate pattern changing this year, from uh, several years of La Niña regime into an El Niño, and the potential that that brings more rainfall to South America and potentially the Lithium Triangle, and that being a, a possible factor that the sea's slightly more hampered supply. And I'd be interested to get your views on on that. Being someone who's much more familiar with the industry and how those uh, weather patterns may affect, Brian. Output.
0: Well, I, I'm not a weather forecaster, but I'll tell you: if you have rain, particularly on the eastern side of the Andes in Argentina, it bad things happen <laughs> to your <laughs> to your ponds. It's not as big a deal in the Atacama because it tends to rain less, no matter what happens. But even when it does, the evaporation characteristics are much better, and that's yeah. that that's a that's a factor climate change affecting lithium production is a very interesting topic you, you can you can have a panel on that at, uh, yeah. but I think it's, it's interesting
1: yeah there'll always be these elements that uh, as I said when when you have a tight market the risk tilt the upside and and it doesn't take much for for supply to to have issues we see it in so many markets weather strikes, this, that logistics issues it just happens.
0: When I worked for What's Now Live in we had a situation with the p- ponds at Ombre Muerto. It was a combination of a CEO wanting too much production and then <laughs> drawing down the pond inventories and then rain. And it was not a good situation. And I was asked to go out and source carbonate for the hydroxide plant. And I, I got carbonate from six different suppliers. And whether it was China or our neighbors in South America, and I had to do it in in relative secrecy because people, if they knew we were as vulnerable as we were, would not probably have sold it to me. But it causes a lot of problems. It it made making hydroxide much more difficult operationally with multiple feedstocks having to be adapted. You will see problems if, if you got Enough rain in in the, the wrong areas in South America where it caused uh, operational issues with the lithium guys.
1: It's really interesting. I'm glad I asked you that because that's uh, yeah interesting to hear the the real life version of of what, what can happen there.
0: All right, so I have I have a couple of listener quest- questions. Well, actually, had more than a couple, but I think we've covered some of them. Sodium ion, how big a threat to the lithium ion space is it?
1: Yeah, I think is is one of the threats, uh, but uh, realistically, it will probably have limited application in vehicles. It will have some application, but but more limited. It's more of a potential threat for ESS. Um, but I think it will take some time to to manifest and actually be part of the uh, more more part of the ecosystem, just because the there's still a lot of investment required to to build out that supply chain and the capacity and and once and and as that as you're doing that it also takes time to really build the economies of scale that actually compete with lithium so um even though on the face of it it's a much cheaper chemistry and and should be cheaper from a materials perspective the investment that's gone into the lithium ion supply chain and the economies of scale that that's bought has has put it pretty in a in a good position ahead of a lot of these competing technologies
0: i think sodium ion can do as much as it can and it doesn't really negatively affect lithium ion in the next decade because i think the lithium industry's ability to supply enough to meet the targets is that questionable that as sodium ion takes its niches it's a win-win I, I don't yeah. I don't view it as a is a major major problem. Maybe if you're the ESS guy that's losing the contract, sodium ion, it's a problem for you. But generically speaking, when you look at the supply and demand models and what gigawatt hours are projected, well, lithium can't can't answer that. And so yeah. it's, it makes sense. I think in EVs it's it's super niche, and I don't I don't think it makes a lot of difference. Um Lithium metal. Do you think fast markets will ever talk about lithium metal? Do you think lithium metal will get to a a place in the next five years where people want to know what the lithium metal price is?
1: Um if it's if it's if it becomes traded and there's a market price to be discovered, then we will discover it and we will assess it. That's the the short answer to that question. So good answer. If there's a market there, then there's a market there. At the moment, the market is super niche. Um, I think some Chinese agencies do put out some some price on that. But um, yeah, it's it's not traded yet. So we can't really, there's no visibility on
0: market discovered prices. Okay. Peter Hanna, we're going to rapid fire. Cool. Last book you read. The last book I read
1: was uh, Prisoners of Geography. And it's about a... The uh the the way physical geography shapes politics, shapes uh behavior. And yeah, it's interesting. I
0: your favorite uh, book of all time, if you can name one. Favorite book of all time. Um
1: I have no I, I I'll probably think of others uh in in the next few hours, but a book I loved was Bravo 20 by Andy McNabb, just a really great uh story of sas mission gone wrong in the in the first gulf war It's incredible
0: as a father of a young child and and about to be a father again what entertainment that your son watches is your favorite whether it's disney or what i don't know what kids are watching these days but (laughs) but i know i had to watch some of those disney things at least 300 times so what's your favorite
1: it's, it's funny actually, uh, in, in the UK we have a channel called CBBS. that's what the, the babies and toddlers watch and it's amazing how familiar you get with all these shows and, and in a way you sort of start to quite like them. Um, the one that has been around for a long time, uh, since the 90s actually is the Teletubbies um, and that, especially some of the older episodes, are actually quite sort of surreal and a bit psychedelic. And they're quite, it can be quite entertaining.
0: Well, actually, if you are familiar with Popeye, then that was when I was a kid. Popeye said stuff under his breath that kids never got. Yeah. that was was, <laughs> was solely there for the parents. Um, yeah, I love that sort of thing. All right, favorite meal.
1: Favorite meal: uh, Christmas dinner with all the trimmings, and I'm sort of glad it only comes once a year because it makes it all that more special, but yeah, loaded up and, and maybe a few leftover round, round twos and threes in the week following.
0: Given the geographical diversity of this audience, could you articulate what <laughs> Christmas dinner means? Yeah. So
1: centerpiece Turkey, which actually isn't a great meat, a um, bit, little bit plain, but it's just Christmas tradition. Um, and then uh, roast potatoes, Yorkshire pudding, which is like a weird uh bready doughy sort of thing, a lot of gravy, um, pigs in blankets, which is little sausages wrapped in bacon, um, and then all sorts of sauces and trimmings that, that go on to, to layer
0: it up. It's all a right. feast- Another good appearance, Mr. Hannah. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks a lot, Joe. Always great to talk to you and yeah, hope to hope to do this again sometime in the future as well.
0: There was a lot of great material in that hour discussion. I really enjoy the way Peter articulates his ideas. I am going to leave you with the thoughts of Charlie Munger. You must force yourself to consider opposing arguments, especially when they challenge your best-loved ideas. Thanks for listening.